Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. Today's message is titled, The Battle of Christian Civility, and it is part of the Good Fight Sermon Series. This message is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, check us out at our website at bccma.org or send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. They're awesome. Thank you. You, you would have... <laughs> If you could have grown up, or, or, or grown up where I did in the kind of church I grew up in, it, it was like uh, the, you, maybe maybe you would like less order, but uh, there was a lot less order. I mean, it was uh, the service was planned uh, during the during the service. I mean, literally, literally, a pastor would come up and he would say, "Rosie, this is a Pentecostal church in North Texas, right?" He would go, Rosie, can you come up here? And this is the middle of service. Rosie doesn't know. Of course, she's used to this. So, Rosie, can you come up here and sing Satisfied? And Rosie come up, Satisfied, Satisfied. And, uh, hey, Henry, can you sing? Now, Henry, Henry sang the same song for 20 years. He only sang one song when he reached down his hand for me. Now, Henry would come, a cowboy. Cowboy, can you and the trio get to get a song together? And, and, and then I started singing. God got me up there. I mean, literally, I, when I first started preaching, young teenage preacher, I would show up and be asked to preach during the middle of service. <laughs> so times have changed. In fact, as I brought this Bible to the, over today, I said, boy, times have changed when the only reason you bring a, a, a real Bible to the pulpit is for a prop times have really changed but we still love the word of God don't we we're going to go to Colossians chapter 4 verse 1 And we're going to talk about the battle of Christian civility, this series called The Good Fight. And we're, we're talking about the, the culture that has become very, very angry and outraged and divided. And how that as God's people, we are part of the culture. We, we're, we're called to be part of the culture. Uh, but we're not called to fight the same fights. Uh, yes, we are to engage Yes, we are, you know, the, the old thing is, people say, well, I'm not political, I'm not interested in politics, and the old uh, quote that I see thrown around is, uh, yes, but politics is interested in you. <laughs> so, it, it's, really, it's really not a good idea to go, so I'm not interested in politics, it's, it affects your lives, and, 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 and we're, we're called by God, uh, I believe, we're called by God to, to participate and engage in culture, and, and engage in civil discourse, and you, you can't always have a side-by-side comparison with the first century because they were not, they didn't live in a representative republic, and so they lived with a different governmental covenant than we do. We are, we are called by God to live within the governmental covenant that we live in, 
and so, yes, we are to be involved and engaged. And, uh, and we, for one thing, you're going to raise children in this environment. And you're going to raise children in this culture. And by the way, we do not live downstream from, from politics. Uh, politics lives downstream from culture. So that's why it's so important that Christians offer a culture that is, that is, that is beautiful and grace-filled and, and solid and liberating and stable because the rest, everything lives downstream from culture. And so I want to say, maybe I'll say more about that in later sermons, but this morning I just want to zero in on civility. Now, civility sounds a lot like respect, but it's, there's more to it. Civility is the ability to, without minimal, with minimal force and disturbance, allow everyone to have a voice, even if that voice differs from yours. Everyone to have a voice without losing your own voice. That's what civility is. Civility is not silence. I, I watched some today that, that are are trying to live out Christ in the communities, and they believe that somehow Christian civility is to live in silence and kind of just whatever, whatever the people in the community say, oh yeah, that's what we agree with, and we'll go find scriptures that agree with whatever they're saying. And we should do that, by the way, and I'm going to talk about that in, uh, next week or the week after. I'm going to talk about uh, leaning in to what, what popular culture is saying. And sometimes the church has not been very good at leaning in, but we do the other thing, and that's not good. So, yes, I don't have, I don't have a problem with leaning in, but civility is not losing your own, silent, your own voice, your own convictions. It's not that at all. Christian civility is we as Christ followers bring our perspective into the public square without insisting on shutting down everyone else's. It's, you know, but but I'm, I'm not going to talk about incivility at first this morning, I'm going to talk about a couple of other things, because really what we have is a three-legged stool. You know, uh, 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 Steve Light has said to me a number of occasions, the reason, a, re- uh, the reason a, a marital relationship is one of the most unstable relationships in the world is because it's a two-legged stool. And, and that's why when you have an argument, you will always bring in another person, even though they're not there. When you and your, your spouse or your girlfriend, boyfriend, when you have an argument, you will always, you'll always say something about another person. Well, you know what they said about you. You know, everybody, think, everybody thinks you're this. What are you doing? You're bringing in a third leg so you can have stability in the relationship. And, uh, you know, we know all about that triangulation and all that stuff. But it's actually a healthy principle also. The three-legged stool principle, it's, it's an interesting, it's really interesting that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are a trinity, and it's interesting how many triads they are throughout Scripture, and, how, and, and in culture there's so many triads. And so this is one, one as well. In fact, I want to talk about three things today. I want to talk about, before I get to civility, I want to talk about integrity, clarity, and civility. So we need the other two legs, integrity and clarity, and then we, can have, then we can talk about civility. Now let's look at our text. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you also have a master in heaven. I already lost some people because, oh, there's, the Bible approves of slavery. But actually, the slavery that is mentioned in Scripture is not 
is very dissimilar to race-based slavery that we have in America. In fact, the Bible teaches specifically against, uh, uh, against uh, capturing people in order to make them slaves. And this was more, it was more akin to a working class of people. They, these were more like indentured servants. In fact, they could work off their slavery and, and have their freedom. There were specific laws for times in their working life when they could have complete freedom. And most of the time, uh, they would choose not to have freedom because this was their job. And so they would continue. So uh, don't think that because the Bible uses the word slaves that it's approving of race-based slavery that was so horrible in this country and throughout the world. And it's happening. There are probably more people enslaved right now than ever in history, which is very sad. And, uh, you know, you, you, you saw the 123 children who just got rescued in Michigan, right? You see that, Detroit, Michigan, 123 children, and there are 300, 300 children missing. And they recovered 123, all in sex slavery. Uh, I cannot believe that could be happening in my country. I just cannot believe that could be happening. If there's 300 in Detroit, think how many there are across our nation. It's a huge, huge, huge injustice and a huge problem. Uh, devote yourselves, because you know you have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it, proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So, integrity. Integrity means adherence to moral and ethical principles. Soundness of moral character. Look at what he says back in verse 1 again. Go back to verse 1 with me. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. That was radical advice, by the way, in that culture. That was as radical as you could get because slaves were not considered to be, by the Greek and Romans, they were not considered to have rights as a human being. So for Paul to say, as a Christian, you must be different than the culture around you. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. He's saying, establish your integrity in the community. Establish your sense of justice and fairness and righteousness to a Christian, power, prosperity, and privilege create responsibility, not the opportunity for oppression, but it creates the, the responsibility, it creates responsibility. You know, I'm watching, I'm watching, by the way, uh, congratulations to Compassion New England and all the Bethany uh, church members who showed up yesterday to man the booths at the Happy, Fa Happy Place Fun Fest over at, uh, yes, amen, give yourself a hand. What an awesome day it was. And I got over there a little bit and, uh, and, and saw a little bit of it and it was wonderful. It was just fantastic. I don't know, th I, I don't know hundreds, it looked like thousands of people were walking through there. It was just wall-to-wall -wall people Every, every square foot of that place. And, uh, and it's a part of our philosophy at Bethany. See, this is a part of our philosophy that we want to be bigger on Monday than we are on Sunday. And we want to be bigger on Sunday too, but we want to be, we want to be in part of it. We see a lot of, 
A lot of churches say, build a bridge to the community, and they say, you come across the bridge to, to our church, we want to go across the bridge and build a church in their community. Um, yesterday, though, I'm watching my son, Jay, which is a lot of fun to watch him with Ellie. But, but Jay's walking around with Ellie and uh, taking care of her, and she's on the front of him, and she's sleeping, and then she's waking up, and and I, I, I heard him say, I got to go change your diaper. And I just love that, man. That's <laughs> awesome. He understands. See, it's natural with a baby. If you have any sense at all, you understand the power and privilege you have over them creates responsibility toward them. And that's a Christian ethic. Do you understand that? Do, do you under, and I know I tried to make the point last week. <clears throat> this ethic, I don't care what they tell you, and I, I don't want to put... The secularists down. I'm not trying to put them down, and I'm not trying to say they can't be good and compassionate just like us. I'm not trying to say that at all, but I'm telling you the idea that those with power and privilege are to use their power and privilege to serve those who have less is a Christian idea. It came from the word of, it came from this book. It came from this book. It was never thought of before. Study history. You will find that it was never thought of before until it came to this book and the, the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the first God ever presented to humanity. Study the Greek gods and the Roman gods and, and emperors and all of that. It was the first one who said what a God does is give up his righteous God and serve those who are less. It's, it's an amazing principle. Uh, the Epistle of Diognetes is a great little treasure that we have. And I don't know kind of really exactly who Diognetes was, but he wrote, and, and you ought to look it up, you ought to do a Google search on it, because I'm not going to read the whole piece to you. But he wrote in, 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 in a whole piece about what Christians were like in 130 A.D., Here's one thing he said, though. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Think about that. You, you know what he's saying? He's saying this is odd that they don't destroy their offspring. Because the culture around us, every, if they don't like, you know, if they wanted to have a little boy and they gave a little girl, they'd, they'd just kill her. That's what they did. I kind of think that's happening again. Right? That's happening again. As Christians, we, we stand up for the unborn. We stand up for the oppressed. We stand up for the least, lost and the least. We stand up for them. That's what we do every day at Compassion New England. Every day, every day we take care of those. We, we provide food. We provide, we provide all types of assistance for people who have little to offer. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's the Christian ethic. That gives us integrity. Uh, you know, Christians, we, this text says that Christians are supposed to go around behaving as if God is their boss. Masters in heaven, he talks about. The primary sign of being a Christian is that you behave as one who surrendered. That's why we raise our hands so much in church. Really, we don't raise our hands because we're weird. Some of you do, but. <laughs> no, seriously. Seriously. The raising of hands is the universal sign of surrender. That's why you go to Christian gatherings. 
And invariably, they will raise their hands. That's why some of you don't even know why you raise your hands, but that's why you do it. You do it because you as a Christian, and it's the primary sign of being a Christian is that you're surrendered. One, one uh, culture I heard about was an island where a, a, a missionary went and he preached the gospel, and they began to be saved. And here's the interesting thing about that island. And uh, that island, everybody was very moral, even without Christianity. Even before they became Christians, they were very moral. So they, were, there was, they, they, they didn't cheat on their spouses. They loved their children. They, they, were, they didn't steal from one another. But it was a good culture. And there are many cultures like that, without, without the Bible, without teaching. And, and so someone asked the missionary, so how do you know they've become a Christian? They're already such good people. He said, you know, it was a, it was a fishing community. And he said, well, here's how we know. When they become a Christian, when they come back at the end of the day from fishing, the people who catch fish share their fish with those who didn't catch any. There's always, and this is what we got to learn to look for in our lives, you know, because because we, we, we you can't you, you just can't reduce Christianity to a confession. You can't do that. You can't reduce Christianity to confession. Well, I, well, I got them to say this prayer. They're Christian. No. You reduce Christianity to a sign of surrender. I know I'm a Christian because there are places in my life where I do not do what I want to do, but I do what the master wants me to do. That's how I know I'm a Christian. That's how I know I've surrendered my life. Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, remember that? And Some of you don't. I know you haven't read that, but that's okay. But some of you read it. He's walking the road to Damascus, and he's... He's this person who's, who thinks he's obeying God, you know. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He really does. And, and he, was really a, he was really a terrorist, but he thought he was a terrorist for God. He was, like a, he was like an Islamist who blows himself up or who blows other people up, thinking they're doing God a service. That's what Paul was like. And he's on the road to Damascus. He sees a bright light, and he, and he falls off his beast of burden, and he falls on the ground. He looks up, he looks up and says, very interesting what he said. He said, Lord, who are you? Isn't that interesting? You, you know what the word Lord, Lord meant, right? It was a title. It meant boss. So he didn't know who it was, but he knew he just met the boss. <laughs> the boss, who are you? From that day forward, he did everything the boss said. That's how he knew he was a Christian. Because he started doing what the boss told him to do. And not what he thought was best. So, you know, another thing about Christians is, is, is prayer. He says we're to be bathed in prayer. If you're around a Christian, you're going to be prayed for. You, you, I don't care if you like it or not. You're going to be get prayed for if you're around Christians. If the situation occurs around a Christian, it's going to get prayed about. It's, just, it's such a basic thing. We take it for granted. We just take it for granted. I'm praying for you. I'll pray for you. We take that for granted. But that, is, the, the langu that language is amazing and awesome. Don't, don't diminish the power of that language. I'm praying for you. That is a powerful thing. Don't diminish the language of thoughts and prayers. It is, a, it is an amazing thing. It's uniquely Christian in its origin anyway. And I know that I'm loved this morning because I know that, I know, you know, a while ago when I'm having that episode with my, my throat and everything, I knew that there are people in this room that are saying, God help, Pastor. Do you know how precious that is? That, that, that you have that much, I know you have that much integrity that you're not going, what's he doing up there? You're going, God help him get through this. And God's answering your prayer. My throat's getting better. 
Amen? God is good. Now, the idea of integrity is not limited to the couple of things that are in this one verse, by the way. I went back and counted in the book of Colossians. I went back and counted every admonition in chapter 1, 2, and 3. I, I was shocked. You know, an admonition is a directive. It's advice, and it's counsel, and it's a directive. It's sort of like a commandment, but not exactly. It's God saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I counted 50 admonitions in three chapters. 50 admonitions that all relate to my integrity as a child of God. Oh, so that, that sounds like bondage. No, that sounds like a roadmap. That sounds like a that sounds like a, a GPS. <laughs> that sounds like Siri, man. What do I do about this? What do I do? God says, yeah, here's what you do. God has a directive, and 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 it's so wonderful. I, I, let me give you a new a news flash. Let me give you a news flash. Outsiders, people that aren't a part of the church, aren't Christians, even if you're here today. Outsiders, you know, I know it's so important that we're forgiven. In fact, in fact, you know what all those admonitions told me? First of all, if you gave them an admonition, it's probably because they're not doing it. (laughs) If I tell you, you need to eat right. Well, I'm saying I don't think you're eating right. You need to exercise. Well, I wouldn't say that if you were, I don't go up, I don't go up, you know, Steve, I don't go up to some guy at the gym who's, working out and say, you need to exercise. He would say, are you crazy? What do you think I'm doing? (laughs) No, you tell people to do stuff that they're not doing. So you know what that tells me? That at Colossae, there were 50 things that they weren't doing. And you know what that tells me? That God is a God of grace. Because he had already accepted them. And he had already made them his child. He had already said, you're my beloved It's telling me that the church done right is the most forgiving place in the community. We accept you even though you're a knucklehead. (laughs) We accept you when you're not doing all these things right. He says, okay, it's a place of forgiveness. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Outsiders, outsiders, remember this, this sermon's about outsiders, ultimately. Outsiders don't care that we're forgiven. They want us to be transformed. Let me say that again. Outsiders don't care that we're forgiven. They want us to be transformed. Let me say it another way. Outsiders don't care that we're, we're redeemed. They want us to be good. Outsiders don't care that we've received grace. Outsiders want us to be different. That's, that's called, there's a biblical word, it's called discipleship. We're becoming like him. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed lately, but the culture around us is running out of grace. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how punitive culture has become? I'm like, Oh, for the days of tolerance. 
can we have some tolerance back? I, I think I preached, probably preached against the extremes of tolerance, but I'm like, can we just have some of that back? What happened to that? In fact, I, I, I saw an op-ed, and I'm not going to read all of it to you. Uh, I saw an op-ed. I just want to read you a couple of quotes from this op-ed by Victoria Brown, retired history professor at Grinnell College, and she wrote this in the Washington Post uh, this past week. And... Uh, obviously representing the Me Too movement. And, and by the way, I think we have a ton to learn from the Me Too movement, and, and, uh, and we need to lean into that uh, very much. I think we are. I think we're trying to do that. And, and I, think, I think we've already had a history. Of, uh, I certainly look at, at our church here. Well, I think we've already had a history, and we, we, we could get better. I'm not you know, listening to the stories of women and how you have been abused uh, through culture, uh, through history, and, and in recent history. And so many of you have stories that you've told me, and it just it breaks my heart, and I want Bethany to be a place where you would know that you would be listened to and heard, and we would give you the love and the counsel that you need and help that you need. But, uh, so, and I don't think this lady's uh, ideas necessarily represent uh, every uh, majority of people. But she talked about uh, her husband said something uh, that was um, um, insensitive. And she, she goes on for paragraphs about how she began to yell and scream at him. Now, she's a 70-year-old woman. And she began to scream at him. She said, I announced that I hate all men and wish all men were dead. If one of my grandchildren yelled something like that, I'd have to stifle a laugh. But my husband of 50 years did not have to stifle a laugh. He took it dead seriously. He did not defend his remark. He did not defend men. He sat hunched and hurt as he listened for a moment. It occurred to me, and she talks about what a good man he was. She goes on to say, I said the meanest thing I've ever said to him. Don't you dare sit there and sympathetically promise to change. Don't you say you will stop yourself before you blurt out some impatient, annoying, controlling remark. No, I said you can't change. You are unable to change. You don't have the skills and you won't do it. I said you are, you, I said, are one of the good men. You respect women. You don't hit women or rape women or in any way abuse women. You have applauded and funded feminism for half a century. You're one of the good men, and you cannot change. You can listen all you want, but that will not create one iota of change. Whew, poor guy. I'm telling you, grace is going out of the culture. And what do we get from that as Christians? Well, well first of all, we don't want grace to leave the church. We, we've got we've to resist an anti-grace message. But it also tells us that we have to up our game. We've got to, we've got to get our integrity. We've got to pay attention to our integrity. We've got to, as believers, we've got to clean up our act. We've got to deal with our stuff. We've got, to, we've got to clean up our lives. We've got to become godly people. We've got to figure it out. We need to close the doors, some of us, and get in a room and talk to each other and say, how can we get better as people? How can we talk about the, the things that we're dysfunctional at, the ways that we are not pleasing God, the way, that we're, the way we're hurting ourselves and others? Let's talk about our own hypocrisy. Let's talk about how we can become the people of God. You say, you know... Uh, uh, and, and by the way, 
you know, it's not only, it's not enough for us to respond to the outrage of the month. Do you know what I mean? It's not enough for us to, re- or out, to respond to the outrage of the month. You know, now it's okay, come to our church, we're so cool, we listen to women. That's what I see some churches doing. Whatever the outrage of the month is, oh, we want to tell you we're really good at that. And we're here, let's give you some verses of Scripture to show we're really good at that. No, not only is that disingenuous, it is impractical to only respond to the outrage of the month because the outrage of the month is going to change. Next month is going to be something else, and we, we, oh, we just got that down, right? Next, next, in six months from now, it might be the He Too movement instead of the Me Too movement. So you'll have to keep rewriting your website, because you just got that figured out. You just got figured out how to accommodate that, and how, how the scripture teaches, and it does, it does teach that, by the way. Here's a way to have integrity. I'm going I'm to tell you a simple way, and that's why I brought this book. Here's a way to have integrity. Get you one of these books. If you want to, get you a big black one like this. I love this book. I love this book. You want to stay ahead of culture? You want to stay ahead of culture? You want to you capture the principles behind me too before they even think about it? Get your nose in this book. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You want to simplify your life? Get you one of these books. Get your nose in this book. Learn this book. Read it. Because while I read it and don't understand it, I, I read a lot of stuff I don't understand. I start, I start trying to read Nietzsche, and I go, what is he talking about? I don't go, Nietzsche's stupid. I start reading different. I read all kinds of stuff. I read stuff besides the Bible. I read deep psychological material. I can tell something, there's something there good, but I can't figure it out. I don't stop reading it. I keep reading it. Eventually, I understand it, sometimes. This book, this book, man, it's alive. (laughs) This book is spirit and it's life. He said, my words are spirit and life, Jesus said. This book is alive. This book is so alive that even when you don't understand it, it will impact you. Even when you can't figure it out. And Mark Twain used to say, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me, it's what I do understand. There will be plenty of stuff that you will understand. There will be plenty of obvious stuff that you won't have to worry about, the obscure stuff. And you got a whole church full of Bible scholars that will help you with the obscure stuff. And you got the Holy Spirit, and you got, you got, you got Tim Keller and all kinds of intelligent people like that who will help you understand what you don't understand. It, it must become the obsession of your life. It, this book must become the obsession of your life if you want to be a Christian with integrity. Amen? It's simple. Everybody can do it. Let's give the Lord a hand. <clears throat> Clarity.
Colossians 4.4 and pray for us too. Pray for us too that we may have an open door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I proclaim it as clearly as I should. It's not that Paul's message was uh, non-political. Because it actually was very political. He was saying, Jesus is king. <laughs> that was a very political message in the first century, to say Jesus was king. Yes, our message is quite political, because we're saying Jesus is Lord. <laughs> That's very political. When we superimpose Christ onto social justice, it comes out as, let me tell you, God through Christ demonstrates and acts out that value. Paul's message was, was not non-political, but it was transcendent. It, I don't know if that word means a lot to you, but just think about it, look it up. It's transcendent, and I'll show you in a minute. The battle of clarity that exemplifies the struggle of every believer is to explain how our Savior, how his incarnation and ultimate return confronts every human fear, satisfies every human longing, and fulfills every human hope. I said, the battle of clarity that exemplifies the struggle of every believer is to explain how our Savior's incarnation and ultimate return confronts every human fear, satisfies every human longing, and fulfills every human hope. To those whose hope is nationalism, make America great again, he is promising that Christ is coming to bring healing to the nations. Hallelujah. Revelations 22. Then the angel of God showed me the water of life, crystal bright. It flowed from the throne of God and the lamb right down the middle of the tree. The tree of life was planted on each side of the river, producing 12 kinds of, of fruit. A ripe fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. God is a nationalist. To those whose hope is in authoritarianism, the gospel is the promise that Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 17, 14, they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And with him will be his call, chosen and faithful followers. So what about the globalist? And the utopianists, what are we going to do about them? I mean, th th that would mostly represent people on the left that are utopianists and globalists. Well, to those whose hope is in globalism and utopianism, a new world order. God's got that covered. God's got that covered. He said in Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and he will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's utopianism. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's a new world order. See, globalism is absolutely biblical. I know most, especially Christians and conservative Christians, get very frightened when you start talking about globalism, global governance, because you think of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. I saw a lady at CVS a few years ago, died down the street, CVS, the change she got back from the, from the girl across the counter was $6.66. 
And I watched a lady that I bet didn't know five verses of the Bible go and buy something else so she wouldn't go, walk out the door with $6.66 for change. <laughs> but globalism, God's all about it. When Jesus, the Christ, is the head of the global governance. And that's what the hope of the Christian is. That Jesus Christ is going to be the head of the governance of the world. That Jesus Christ will bring justice to the earth. And he will bring all the nations together under one banner. Under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we will all worship in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. To put in real clear terms. There's peace with Jesus the prince of peace. There's hell with the prince of darkness. We used to have a lot of clarity when we believe in heaven and hell. Let's bring it back. Christ saves us from hell. Amen? Whether that be the literal hell or your metaphorical hells, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and the hope of the world. Okay, civility. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Civility is not just being nice and agreeable all the time. Civility, it's kind of like, it's kind of like boxing. You know, in the, the old Roman gladiator boxing, they would have no gloves, and they would often fight to the death. There were no rules just go beat, pummel, pummel your opponent to death. But a guy named uh, uh, Marquis of Queensbury came along in about 1867, and Steve, you should know this. He came along and he, uh, he came along and he said, "We need some rules." So he created a, a ring that they had to stand inside of a ring, and time limits, and eventually they started wearing gloves, and they had to touch gloves before they start, and. Couldn't hit, couldn't hit below the belt and couldn't, all this, these rules. So it's still, it, it's still a rough sport, but it has, it has found, it's kind of like civility. It's, it's, it's the public square should be a place where we have our thoughts and we have our opinion, but we have boundaries for that opinion. He, what does he say? He said, I want your conversation to be filled with grace. You know, you know Jesus said some really rough things sometimes. But he, 99% of his communication was not rough, not negative. He said some negative things. He called people snakes in the grass and stuff like that a few times. And, uh, but almost never, it, uh, people always wanted to engage with Jesus. They never, they never stopped inviting him to the, to the public square. You ever notice that? They never stopped inviting him because, you know why? Because he was always fair. If he had something negative to say, it was brief, to the point, and he moved on. He never harassed. He never name-called. He never tried to smear people. He never tried to, to uh, 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 reduce a person to, 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 to tears. He was filled with dignity. A grace-filled conversation, though, is marked mostly by sweetness and acceptance. See, we can give everybody dignity. That's what it is. We can't give everybody discipleship because they don't want it. But we give everybody dignity. Grace-filled conversation in the 21st century means showing genuine tolerance to all kinds of views and all kinds of spiritual beliefs. 
This is a new experience for a lot of Americans. Only in the last 10, 15 years has the public square become as diverse as it is now. The world that I grew up in back in McKinney, Texas, everybody in town that I knew was either a Christian or they were very, very oriented toward Christian views. That is not the case anymore. We have a new challenge. We're more like the first century church. And how did that go? Everybody I know says, let's get back to being like the first century church. We have a great opportunity to be like the first century church because culture and society is more like the first century. So that's what God wants us to be. You treat other person's point of view with respect even though you may be appalled by it. This is the idea of letting your conversation be full of grace. A salt, a salt sprinkle conversation. He says, have some salt in there. That's the truth that I talked about it a minute ago. Tolerance and honesty are wrapped up together in a grace-filled package with humility and patience. The humility is this. The humility is not to doubt the truth of your own beliefs, but to recognize the limits of what you can prove to others. Recognize the limits of what you can prove to others. It's going to take a revelation of the Holy Spirit to reprove it to others. Think about how you came to Christ. It was a moment of revelation from the Holy Spirit. Patience is the willingness to stay in relationship and proximity with other people even when we disagree. Jesus communicated grace to a broken people, confused people, and searching people. Jesus communicated grace to resistant people. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long would you gather as a hen does her chicks? But you would not. Notice he stayed gracious. He stayed full of grace and longing toward people who were resisting him. The Bible calls Jesus the Word. The Word that came to dwell among us. That's very interesting. The Logos. Jesus' entire life was a conversation. Let your conversation be filled with grace. That means you're supposed to have conversations. You're supposed to have conversations with people that, you, that don't agree with you. You're supposed to have conversations with people who have a different point of view. Jesus' life was a conversation. The only person he wouldn't have a conversation with was the devil. And the devil, he just rebuked him and said, get out. He had conversations with everybody else. The devil just got shut down. His death on the cross, listen to this, was arranged to appear as a conversation, not a conquest. Let that sink in for a minute. His death on the cross was arranged to appear as a conversation, not a conquest. Every Easter, pastors and preachers, I join pastors in Milford every year, from every faith tradition and we meet and we rehearse the seven sayings of Christ on the cross more importantly it's that the cross itself was a conversation that Jesus had and he keeps on having over and over again years ago I wrote a song the nail pierced scars in his hand say I love you the spear pierced in his side, say the same thing too. Oh, the pain and the shame that he went through. There the Lord did say in a special way that I love you. Listen, there's nothing better that you can do today for the civility of the public square than to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's the best thing you can do. I want to invite our prayer partners to come right now and I want them to stand. And I want some of you who are here today who want, you want the world to be a better place you want the world to prosper. You want there to be civil discourse and peace in the world. 
you don't like the insanity that you see when you turn on the various cable news networks. You don't like the insanity that you see in, in social media. You don't like all the bickering and the battling. And you don't like all the calling out of everybody. You don't like to see people's lives being destroyed. Maybe because they made a mistake or in, in saying the wrong word and then, then, then they lose their career. You don't like that world. You don't, you, that's not the world that you want to live in. I'm telling you, the best thing you can do for your world is become a Christian. The best thing you can do for your world is to get saved. The best thing you do for your world is commit your life to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you, the best thing you can do today is become a citizen of heaven. And that's my invitation to you today to do that, to become here today. And we, we believe that starts with a simple prayer. That starts with a confession. I didn't mean to put down confession a while ago because I believe that's where it starts. We confess the great confession. It starts with, a, the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's the surrender part, that you use the word Lord. You understand now he's the boss of your life. And you bring your life under his order and you begin to live that. And you, you, you get one of these books and you start absorbing it. And you start learning it. And you start discovering the word of God, the conversation of God that's in its pages. That's what I want to invite you to start that journey today. And if you need prayer for anything today, anything going on in your life, even if you have the flu, <laughs> come and be prayed for and God will touch you. Father, in Jesus' name, I invite people to have their needs met today from the greatest need meter of history, Jesus Christ. Let's come and enter into uh, response time. Take communion. Pray for one another. Have a great day. And you can have it all, Lord. Every part of my This heart that is